Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and with James Holland. And James, we are joined today by a very special guest um, on a subject which is extremely fascinating. And as we push further into it, I've got some family tidbits to dangle into the story as well. Woo-hoo. Oh, my goodness. Well, yeah, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I'm very, very excited about this one. Um, we have got the David Woods Kemper 41 Professor of American History at Harvard University, no less. This is Jill yeah, LaPorte. Yeah, this is Jill LaPorte. We've gone right to the very top this time. Um, and Jill also has um, her own podcast series called The Last Archive, where she delves into kind of untruths from the past and kind of serial lying and uh, fake news. But fake news. Fake, fake news. news. Yeah. Which isn't as uh, recently coined phrase as people might think, um, which is one of the things I learned today um, uh, listening to your podcast today, Jill. Is that, that the, I, the, 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 the name fake news, the label has been around since the First World War? Well, it really comes from the Second World War. So it's what the British called Nazi radio. Uh, since Nazi yeah. radio broadcast was often really presenting itself as a news broadcast. And of course, it was just a bunch of propaganda. Yeah. But then but then propaganda. Uh, what do we mean by propaganda after? Because pr- propaganda is a pejorative term, isn't it? When you, you say the enemy, the enemy uh, it pumps out propaganda, whereas we what we do is we we uh, keep people informed with the news they need to hear and maybe keep some of the stuff they don't need to hear from them. And that's not propaganda. That's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's, our, side, that's our side doing it right. right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So propaganda, yeah. the term propaganda does come from the First World War. And in fact, when people uh, first use the term propaganda, it really it really just was just a, a, a form of propagate or propagation, right? And it kind of came from the advertising industry. Like if you want to get out the emergence of mass communications with early radio, say in the 19, in the 1920s. So advertising agencies would talk about that they were providing propaganda services. But during the, during the first world war, it became, it, it, it acquired this incredibly negative connotation um, yeah. where the tools of mass communications in the first world war made possible lying on just a scale never before seen in human history, right? The capacity to um, d- to tell lies to people using new mediums 
was kind of staggering. And it, it the, the response in the 1920s in the U.S. and also in the U.K. was a kind of really kind of doubling down on the ethics of journalism, right? So, so journalists in, in the night, it was kind of a heyday for journalism because journalists like reeling from all these young men who had served in the war, right, had been lied to, um, had seen their friends die, decide to really commit themselves to a kind of deeper investigative journalism that would expose corruption. Yeah. Um, but then you get to the 1930s and and it's not just propaganda now. Now it's what comes to be called psychological warfare, right? Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the tools of mass communication, but added to that now is the kind of social science of psychology, right? So right, it's yeah. not just that you can use the radio, but that you actually have all this exper- this body of empirical knowledge from experimental psychology about exactly what you can say to somebody to change their mind. And this matters more, d- d- doesn't it? Because we've got democracies at this point. The 19th century, that there's less democratic pressure um, on governments to uh, lead, their pol- lead their publics, as it were, to, to follow them, if you see what I mean. Right, right. That, 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 that once you have democracies, once you've got to, you've got to get the public on side for the things you want to do, the, 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 the governments. So this becomes more important it, uh, as the, you know, as the 20th century sort of unfolds. Right, right. It's like, it's really, that's right. right. It's only really just the beginning of kind of universal suffrage, right? And in the US, we don't have that, right? Yeah. Because it's still disenfranchising black people. But, you know, like even just universal manhood suffrage and by the US, you know, and in the UK, women can finally vote by the 1920s. And so yep. there's this whole emerging science of, of public opinion measurement or all these tools like polling and stuff like, OK, well, if you're going to if you're going to govern over people and everybody can vote or, you know, we at least subscribe to the idea that everybody can vote. Well, you kind of want to know what do they want you to do, but you also want to tell them that they want you to they, they what they want is what you're going to do anyway. So, right, right? Yeah. so this, you know, Gallup or these early polling companies could figure out ways to select a random sample of the population and assess their opinions about matters. And then, you know, elected officials use that to to decide what to do, but also how to run a campaign. So there are all these tools of mass persuasion that we can think about as like really helpful for democracies. But they can also be used um, by authoritarians, right, to, to, to tell people what to believe, right? Like if that's the difference between fascism and democracy, like a, 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 in democracy, you ask people what they think so you can govern so that they can, you know, consent to their rulers. But in, in, a, in a fascist regime, you tell people what to think. <laughs> but it's right, still the yeah. same technology of communication. Do you know what I mean? Like it's still right. the same kind of theory of... How do ideas get from one person to many people and from many people to one person? It's just which direction the communication is going. But Jill, can I just ask you, just go backwards to, to, to the First World War. I mean, you're, you're saying there's, there's, there's the spread of fake news and, and mass lying and all the rest of it. But how, how does that mass manifest itself? I mean, is that, is that sort of, you know, saying that all Germans sort of go around raping Belgian nuns? Or or, or is it, I mean, you you thinking that or are you thinking something more... Or is it just kind of sort of how it's all going? Oh, it's all going fine when it isn't. Well, I mean, in, in the American context, remember, like, the First World War, Americans had no real interest in joining that war, right? This is, this is mm. really the birth of American isolationism. I mean, Americans had not been involved in European yep. wars, but so, but but that becomes kind of entrenched as an idea, right? That Americans should not be involved. This is this is a European conflict. It's devastating. It's, it's the, the slaughter is tremendous. But Wilson, President Woodrow Wilson, who's an internationalist, really keen to get. Um, the United States involved in the war. And once he decides to um, and goes to Congress and gets a declaration of war, he really does have to sell the public on the idea of the war. Um, John Dewey, the, the political philosopher, calls it the conscription of thought. He Wilson uh, forms within the government the so-called Committee on Public Information. It's run by a guy named George Creel, who had been a muckraking journalist who'd you know, written exposés about child labor um, and he is uh, charged with convincing Americans that the that the war is necessary because of the evil of Germans, right? So it really is German soldiers raping Belgian nuns, right? So Creel comes up with all yep. of these methods, like there are you know these silent films, newsreels that are made by Creel. But the, I think some people can kind of conjure in your mind like the posters, the, the Committee of Public Information made these posters where the Germans look like gorillas, like not gorillas, G-U, but like apes. I mean, they're just, yep, they're, yep. De- it's, they're just depicted um, in, a, in a wholly savage manner, right? They're animals, um, they're rapacious, they have these like sharp teeth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, 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 you know, there's just a, I, just I know a, the pictures like a you're huge, talking about. 
You know, remember that um, Americans couldn't call hamburgers hamburgers during the First World War? They were renamed Salisbury Steaks. Yeah. Like, the, all this weirdness around, like, everything <laughs> German um, was to be reviled. There was a lot of, there were a lot of what, you know, we would call now hate crimes against German-Americans. Like, there was just a, a need to whip up a frenzy that the aggressive German must be stopped. It was terrifying to Americans who were paying attention to it as a, as, as a matter of mass persuasion. Um, even yeah. people who really supported U.S. entry into the war, you know, and, and, and did think it was necessary, were really shocked by how effective it was. I think actually, you know, kind of this is sort of Walter Lippmann, the great political commentator, um, writes a book about public opinion after the war. He had been himself involved in wartime propaganda. He dropped like, you know, leaflets across Germany telling trying to get German troops to desert and, and leave the forces. Um, he wrote these incredibly persuasive leaflets, but he was kind of shocked to see that they worked. Like you could tell people what to believe <laughs> and you could manipulate their opinions. And then he was like, shoot, because that, that means how, how can we justify living in a democracy? Like if the people can be so easily led are in this age of mass democracy, Maybe democracy doesn't work anymore. Anyway. He became he he became really right. skeptical about democracy as a consequence of his w work as a wartime propagandist. So there's a there's a great sense of um, I don't know kind of loss of innocence around the First World War. Yeah, yeah, well, not not least because of the slaughter, but yeah. but also but suddenly in the 1920s and, and I suppose from from the First World War period onwards, but in the 1920s and 1930s, suddenly you've got these all these different means of of spreading this stuff haven't you i mean whether whether you're a fascist dictator whether you're a democracy suddenly there's radio and there's there's cinema and you know the, there's there's i know newspapers have been around before but it, but they're kind of there's more of them and and you know there's scripps howard syndicates and in america and and so on and so forth so your your means of getting out this message whatever your message is is far greater than it had been 30 years before 40 years before well, which is why the, in, in this country that the government have such problems with radio, don't they? They 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 really are very, very, very reluctant to let the BBC set itself up and uh, uh, and spend three or four years sort of in agonies deciding whether to right. let any anyone broadcast other than the military. That radio is for military communication. It's it's not for mass yeah. uh, communication. And, and, they, and, and, it, and they go through all sorts of conniptions, figuring out. Um, who should be allowed to do it, where they're allowed to do it from, what technology they're allowed to do it, because because they, they think that basically the genie will be out of the bottle if they right. let radio happen, which is really, really interesting. Yeah, but... but, but, but they're all scared of it, but, but know, then, understandably. But then in Nazi Germany, they suddenly go, hang on a minute, we've got radio. Let, let's make radios really cheap. Let's mass-produce radios. You know, so you get the, the, the Deutsche uh, Kleinenflanger, uh, Fanger, the, you know, the, the German little radio that we've talked about before, Al. You know, this idea yeah. that... that Every household can have one. And even if you don't have one, you can put them in the stairwells of apartment blocks and you can put them in, in square, public squares and in restaurants and bars and all the rest of it. So you can just get out all this, this, this crap all the time. And, and amazingly, in 1939, on the eve of war, there are more radios per household in Germany, even than in the United States. It's, it's the, leading, um, the leading proportion of radios anywhere in the planet is in Nazi Germany. And that's, that's purely as a... As a, as a propaganda tool, which means you can sort of brainwash your nation into kind of grotesque, warped ideology. Yeah, it is a tremendous change. And I think it also historically is really helpful to think about as a kind of metaphor for the Internet. Right. All the caution that yes. people in the UK had about the BBC in the US with the we have the Federal Communications Commission, which began as the Federal, Federal Radio Commission in 1927. All the caution and the desire for there to be government regulation is turns out to be totally warranted. What's crazy about the internet is by the time you get to 1996, everyone's like, let's throw all that stuff away. Let's have a completely unregulated internet because it's just like an incredible tide of libertarianism in the U.S. at that time. Yeah. It's really Newt Gingrich who says, uh, you know, we're going to have an unregulated internet. And they throw out the entire regime of regulating broadcast means, mm. which not only had, but there had been a great deal of caution in the 20s because people had seen the kind of manipulation in the First World War, even without the radio. But there was way more caution by the time you get after the war in the 40s. So in the U.S. in 1949, the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, establishes this thing called the Fairness Doctrine, 
which means, and there's versions of this, you know, in the BBC as well. You can't say yeah. something, you can't have a broadcast that's like all one political position. Like you're required to have multiple political positions represented yeah. in, a, in a broadcast or you'll lose your license. And that's a response to, you know, Goebbels. Like that's just a response to like the FCC had a listening post in Maryland and they listened to Nazi radio and they saw what it did to the German people and they thought we have to have... Make sure Grave, that greater happen. strictures in place. Like that's not. It's not enough that we just have got a government that issues broadcast licenses. We need to do more than that. And then, obviously, interested parties get involved in that. Because I mean, one of the one of the things with the BBC is you. I mean, I'm a I'm a comedian in my other other life, and one of the things one of the very first things you weren't allowed to joke about on the BBC was vicars. <laughs> you, you, they were they, <laughs> right, so right, funny. Right, right from the start. They were off limits, and and it's it, you know it's because obviously. You know, the church at that point in the in the interwar years was powerful enough to lean on the BBC and say, <laughs> no, you know, no, 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 take, no, take <laughs> no, Mickey out of us. But radio in itself and, and then the sort of uh, and then there's the extensions of it, aren't there? As well as visual propaganda, this leafleting and all that sort of thing. They become they become weapons in the in in the Second World War. And. Uh, uh, for for all participants, don't they? Not just to bolster their own populations, but as an, actually as as things to attack the enemy morale with. And I think, the, the, I mean, one of the interesting things about this is, um, uh, you know, Axis Sally is the is the, the, the extremely famous um, uh, manifestation of this. But my grandfather worked in the political political warfare executive with Sufton Delmer doing black radio at the end of the war, doing exactly the same thing. Um, who who was she? She's crazy. She's she's really really interesting. But I had to listen to so many of her broadcasts to do this podcast episode of Last Archive. Is <laughs> um, so her name is Mildred Gillars. She was born in Portland, Maine. She went to Hunter College in the '30s. She was sort of a failed actress and sort of a con woman. Like she had been involved in a bunch of cons that she'd been arrested for in in the, in the 1920s. She really wanted to be an actress. She had a kind of uh, I don't know cheap glamour about her and in the 30s she um i think kind of fell in love with a german professor she had at hunter college in any case she moves to germany in the middle of the 1930s she never gives up her american citizenship which gets her which is a problem for her later on um and she she ends up being hired by radio berlin even before the war uh as an as an american voice of, broadca- of broadcasting and she becomes really the biggest radio berlin star she has she broadcasts largely under a series of different pseudonyms um sally is one of them she has a program called midget the mic um and she has a kind of you're supposed to as you listen to her the, this sort of sultry Voice, kind of Rita Hayworthy kind of voice that she has. I think you're supposed to conjure her as a kind of blonde bombshell. Uh, I, like I think right. listeners were always imagined her noir, to be, you know, something that like the, you know, the, the 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 that you'd paint on your fighter plane. You know what I mean? Like that, just like yeah. the sexy. Um, she's got this kind of sultry, sexy voice, and she broadcasts. Americans call her Access Sally. The broadcasts that she makes, um, really beginning in 1942 through 44 are aimed in two ways. First, at U.S. prisoners of war um, to diminish their morale. And then secondarily, I mean, they're already captured, but just to, just it's it's this kind of operation there that, that, that uh, you could reach that audience. And then secondarily, um, at, the ho- at the American home front. So she's often addressing women. So she'll say, you know, girls... Do you miss your loved ones who are fighting this stupid war for that idiot Roosevelt? Um, your sons are dying. Your boyfriend is being tortured right now. Like just, just to, uh, yeah. um, just jab the knife in the gut of American women and twist it and twist it and twist it. And she's presenting a lot of fake information. She does. She goes to prisoners of war camp, prisoners of war camps, and interviews prisoners. Uh, kind of under false pretenses, but then she'll provide news of different soldiers and how they're suffering. And in, in so people listen so they could hear whether they might get word of you know one of their kids or something or their you know their husband. Yeah. Uh, it's just yeah. fairly brutal stuff. Um, it's you know it's just full of anti-Semitism. Um, there's just it's grotesque to listen to. 
but I was really interested in it. I mean, the reason that I, you know, I you guys do a show about the Second World War. My podcast is about the whole of the 20th century, the last hundred years, and what's happened to doubt and why things are doubted and what's going on with truth. And I'm kind of fascinated by like neo-Nazi trolling and online today. And I kind of was interested in like, what was the actual Nazi trolling like? You know, like what, 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 what. <laughs> Like, what were actual Nazis doing? And it's really fascinating to listen to. But in any case, she, um, the FCC picked up and recorded her broadcasts. And after the war, tracked her down, arrested her, and went on this hunt through Berlin to try to find her collection of records. Because they had made, they had recorded uh, uh, on albums these broadcasts and she had stowed them away in the basement of an apartment building where she had once lived. So amazingly, they find all this stuff and they bring her back to try her for treason because as an American citizen, she can be tried for treason. If she'd become a German citizen, she, you know, they're, they're, the consequences would have been very different. So it's it's one of yeah. the first of these trials. There's there's a couple that happened before of trying Americans who broadcast in Berlin for Radio Berlin for treason, for providing aid and comfort to the enemy during the war. And it's it's really one of the first, these, some of the first trials where radio broadcasts are introduced as evidence, right? Like this is your, this is the, 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 the evidence of your crime is the words that you spoke as recorded. Um, so it's a crazy, the, the trial in DC, this is 1949, by the time she's tried, it's a huge, th- I mean, people dying to see her prosecuted. I mean, there's just like a real appetite yeah. for that everybody reports on the trial. But the judge makes this kind of fascinating decision, which I just think was really a powerful illustration of how dangerous people have come to think about the intimacy of the human voice across uh, across um, the airwaves. They, they decide to have headphones in the trial for the jurors and the lawyers so that, every, so that you could hear it well, because it's hard to hear the recordings aren't that great, but also so that nobody else has to listen to it. Like, it's so poisonous right. what she's saying and so... But Jill, I mean, you, so you, you had a lot of... Jill, you had a lot of... Um, you had quite a few extracts on your uh, on your podcast. And the first one you use where she's being really grotesquely anti-Semitic. I mean, it's it's really shocking. But it's also... But also I'd say it's also preposterous. It's part of the it's part of the thing, isn't it? Because after all, the, these it's the idea that these words are so powerful they, they they're not allowed out out in the open air. You can try her for what she says, but how can you ever know what anyone's reaction to it was? Which is, after all, you know how you have to temper the the, the context of a of a broadcast, don't you? That were, were people blowing raspberries at it and laughing at it when she'd say that stuff? Yeah, that's the thing we don't. We that's don't the know. thing that's un, I suppose is. But, is unknowable, and and of course the, the the ongoing question when you when you when you you know this idea of essentially the judge was not trying to know platformer essentially but sort of can contain her platform at the trial wasn't he? I mean, do we know how many people listened? to Yeah, it? so and, I think and, there's a lot of skepticism about how many that 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 many people listened or what its actual effect was. Um, and I think that there's a lot of social science going on now because of course we live in an age of disinformation today that um that suggests it doesn't really have to have that much success for it to be a problem so in the US or even with your Brexit vote right the perception that outside parties might have interfered in that vote has led a lot of people to lose confidence then in elections so it doesn't we don't need to prove say that russian inter- russian hacking interfered with the 2016 election for people to be freaked out about it right you just need to freak people out so it did freak people out that these broadcasts could reach the U.S. Um, and there was an attempt on the part of the Justice Department to find some really measure of the effect of of her attempts by f- trying to find former prisoners of war to ask, like, did she come? Did you listen? What was it like to listen? And they they couldn't really, they were ineffective at, at doing that because the veteran was like, I'm not coming to D.C. to testify at this trial. Like, I just got home. Like, I just, just leave me alone. Like, I don't want to do that. Um, so it, it is a little bit hard to say. My favorite, uh, Richard Rivera, who's this incredibly talented writer who reported um, for The New Yorker on the trial, uh, really one of the greatest political writers of the 20th century in the U.S. He goes to the trial and he has the headphones and he listens and he just says, I remember exactly what he says, we're just like, turns out this Nazi propaganda is pretty perishable stuff. <laughs> 
like it's just like he can't take it seriously like it's just crap it was always crap nobody could have ever taken this seriously like she's just like such a fifth rate threadbare pathetic person well i don't know what it says about me because because you know he he thinks it's preposterous al clearly thinks it's preposterous you clearly think it's preposterous but 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 you know and when i first listened to it today you know i, I just thought god that's really chilling i mean i found the whole thing really sinister i found yeah. it much more sinister than than silly no, I do. I do, too. But, and I think it was an issue thinking about how much of it to play on the podcast episode. Right. Um, yeah. But it is very long ago. And I do think there is a lesson to be learned from from thinking it through. Right. Like and I do think there is a, a, a certain amount of it that we do need to listen to and, and think about. Um, did, did they not run into a First Amendment question? I mean, where how does that how does that impact in a treason trial? If she's she's. I know she was, I suppose she was in Germany, she was doing it for the enemy is the thing that rules out her First Amendment rights. Does it? I mean... Yeah, treason is treason, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Like I, Fine. I, I don't Fine. think she, you know, <laughs> that, well, that's what her lawyer tried to say. You know what? There's no law against hating Jews, which is what she, you know, that she, and, and trying to get other people to, you know, like that he tried to give some kind of weird sort of First Amendment argument. But no, I mean, aid and comfort to the enemies, aid and comfort to the enemies, and you can give. By 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 diminishing the 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 morale of your own people, um, yeah, it's that I think what's it is interesting to me that the trials really so clearly um, establish that the harm of speech, which is you know such a big issue today in contemporary political discourse, right? What is a speech harm versus you know a harm yeah. of violence, right? Like if she had taken up arms, right, and gone and shot a bunch yeah. of Americans. That would be treason. How can words be bullets here? And that's that's what the radio, like the the real concern about what radio does, had had allowed for by way of the the, the successful prosecution. But the amazing thing about her is that she she does what twelve years, something like that. She gets parole, doesn't she? And then ends up being a, a languages teacher in a school in Columbus, Ohio. I mean, can you believe it? And lives to what nearly ninety or something. Yeah, and sort of never speaks of it again, which, you know, I really am glad of in the sense you don't really want to ever hear from this person again. We need to take a break right now. We'll see you in a tick. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Did she um, attempt to rationalise what she'd done? I mean, she... She, as I understand it, she she was in German in, in in Germany, wanted to was going to marry a German guy, wasn't she? And 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 he said, I I'm not coming to the U.S. with you if we get married. I'm staying here. And, and then he joins up. He's killed in he's killed in on the Eastern Front. And then she's sort of stuck in in, in and she's a as you said earlier, she's a con woman. She's a grifter. So she's mm-hmm. just trying to make her way, isn't yeah. she? As much as anything else. I mean, do we know actually how politically motivated she was, or is it? Is it is it grifting? I mean, I, mean, I think it's grifting, I but I do actually think she she was a believer in the stuff that she said. Her lawyer's yeah. defense includes the argument that you would expect that somehow she was a vulnerable young girl who you know fell in love and then was trapped and and then needed yeah. to you know feed herself and so took a job because she had you know voice training and poor Mildred Gillers, she just kind of got lost yeah. in all of this. And it just doesn't fly. First of all, she's not a girl. She's a grown woman. She's not super, yeah, She's yeah. not young. I mean, she. I think on her radio voice, you get the sense she's quite young, quite a bit younger than she is, but she's in her 40s by the end of the war. Um, and she's not a vulnerable, like she is the highest paid performer for Radio Berlin. Like she's, she's, it's not like she's trying to make you know, kind meet. of getting in the door trying to make ends meet. I, I think it's much more than that. And I, I, what they were never able to establish was whether she had a role in pr- creating any of this propaganda. The thing that really nails the conviction is this broadcast called Vision of Invasion, which is a radio play that actually is a little bit modeled on Orson Welles' War of the Worlds, the adaptation of, of H.G. Welles' War of the Worlds, which had been broadcast in 1930. Remember, like, people are mainly listening to radio yeah. plays, right? So it's not even fake news. It's it's fiction, but it's but it's, present, it's presented almost like it's news. So it's, a, it's, it's the story of this American mother who discovers that her son is going to be part of, you know, what will become the D-Day invasion, and she's she's distraught about this because he's just 
a pawn in this, you know, Rooseveltian, Churchillian, you know, nefarious conspiracy to take the lives of, you know, hundreds of thousands of American boys and British boys. And so it's this whole, like, kind of fake vision of the invasion. Um, And she plays the mother. Uh, And there's some intimation that she, you know, also helped write that play. Um, so I think her, I, I think she's pretty right. deeply involved. She's she's not just some sort of American innocent abroad. So it's so because after all, I mean, I I, I don't know how familiar you are with the, the PG Woodhouse. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we almost thought about I, using some of the Woodhouse broadcasts in the story. You see, because that that epi- that episode is is very very interesting. Because after all, every now and again in this country, you'll get a sort of Sunday newspaper uh, supplement, or someone will write a book about it. And they'll go back to it and revisit it. And the unknowable, th- the unknowable thing. And after all, everyone, anyone, anyone who who, who is at all literate in this country loves P.G. Woodhouse, uh, Jeeves and Wooster. They're like at the, they're the sort of the, the the cornerstone of British comic humorous writing, right? And and praise lavished upon him. And and so it's almost the the, the thing you can't quite say is that Woodhouse. You know, the or, or div- the thing you can't divine is the the extent to which Woodhouse knew what. Basically knew what he was doing, or, or the if he didn't, which... you can you forgive him his incredible naivete and, and, and so on, right. and so on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think because that that's such an interesting case, isn't it? Because also the, the when he was doing it, the war wasn't quite where it had got to. Um, uh, uh, you know, he was in four, 1940, wasn't it, Jim? Forty one, yep. and he was doing yep. his yeah, yeah. Got, so he got because he, tra- he was in France. Got, he sort of got he was in France. There, he got caught he? in France. Yeah, he got trapped in France. But that's not to say. I mean, as you say, as you say, Jill, it's naivety. Well, you know, he's a rich man. He'd have been able. To, he'd have been able to get out. He'd have been able to buy his way out somehow. I and mean, that's one. The one thing that we do know, definitely know about the Nazis. Do what everyone else did. Get a boat. You, you get, get, yeah, pay pay someone to take you to a boat and get you out. And so it's interesting that he didn't. And so where he fits into this picture, because after all, Lord Hawhor is the one every in this country everyone knows about. And of course, there's the contradiction that he's not British and the British put him on trial for treason and, and execute him. I mean, which is, you know, it's, it's British justice exceeding its bounds ever so slightly. I mean, it, it, it's fascinating. That, you know, Woodhouse sits in this grey zone that he's still indulged, yeah. you know, even now yeah. it's, he's still... He's still growing. You know, this... I have to say, I've well, listened to the broadcast. I've read and read and read about it. You know, but there are also, you know, there's what's the guy, the brown shirt guy in the Woodhouse stories with the British knees? Spode. Spode. You know, R- he, 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 Spode. It, it's not as though he's not making fun of these people. Like, it's not as though he's unaware of, yeah. you know, what a British fascism would look like. Um, yeah. I, you know, I, I can't. I can't, you know, I've read the Orwell essay trying to reckon with it. Like, I think, you know, you do your due diligence to try to like, but I still love Woodhouse. But this is it. This is, this is, I suppose, you, you know, um, this is one of the, this is one of the problems, isn't it? Is that his, his, his stuff is so brilliant. He's so, and he's, I mean, one of the things is the books aren't naive. The books are incredibly knowing and gend up and clued yeah. up and all that sort of thing so for them to then be so wrong-footed right is, i mean I, right so you're just left with was the guy just a coward like at the end of the day was he just and it came down to it and they said do this and he said okay probably and that's and that then turns into one of the you know the great imponderables of what what would you do in that situation you do, you know uh and, and so whereas what axis sally decided to do <laughs> was was uh, grift their way to the being the highest paid radio yeah. performer on radio? But I mean, it's a, it's a. I suppose there's a, there's a difference there. It's so interesting. The Woodhouse thing is so interesting because the, the, the circle yeah, I mean, has never be been clear, satisfactorily In fairness squared. to Woodhouse, there's a huge difference. I mean, oh, the yeah. content of his broadcast is nothing like what she's. I mean, you know, as Jim said, no, it really the, isn't. It really the, isn't. Just horrible. They're they're hor- they're horrible. They're horrible. They're horrible. Yeah. They really are horrible. And that was really clear from your from your podcast. I mean, Joe, I'm also kind of interested, though, about, 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 what, about what you were saying about sort of, you know, manipulating minds and all the rest of it. And your stuff about kind of neo-Nazis. I mean, I, obviously, we're, we're Second World War, but Nazis go back to those those terrible 12 years which cover the Second World War. What are your sort of conclusions about the rise of neo-Nazism now? Or is it is it not a rise of neo-Nazism? Is it kind of just 
always been there, sort of bubbling away. I'm mean, trying to think of like, so the way the podcast works, we go kind of decade by decade through the 20th century. And it turns out sure. that um, there is a pattern that's sort of relevant to, I guess, what you guys are often discussing, which is that war really unsettles people's ability to discriminate between what's true and what's not true. Every war has that effect. Um, because right. there's just so much lying in wartime, right? And and um, there's also a lot of complicity about the necessity to lie, even among people of of, of good heart and and good intention. Um, and so you, I think what I the pattern that I kind of detect is, it, it's almost like it's um, you know, some something that like an organ that is expanded and stretches and then eats during war. It, there's a lot of pressure, but then it kind of can return to its original size and shape and configuration after the war, but it kind of loses its elasticity. So you have the First World War and like people lie and there's a lot of lying. And like, all right, well, we'll figure out how to tell the truth again through journalism. And the Second World War is like so much propaganda and psychological warfare. And you don't know what, you know, it's just so crazy. And then after the war, we're like, well, we'll have these like new regulations for broadcasting. We'll have the Fairness Doctrine, things like this. We'll have this kind of air. Then you get like the Korean War, this, well, now there's brainwashing and the Manchurian candidate. And then, yeah. you know, governments are using, well, there's all this concern. And, and then it comes down. Then the Vietnam War in the U.S., like, okay, the government's just lying. <laughs> the government is just, li- just lying, right? So after the Pentagon Papers in 1971, people like no longer trust the government. And there's so much Russian propaganda that's affecting Americans in those years as well. We have a whole episode about Soviet propaganda during the Cold War. Like, it somehow, you get to the end of, like, the thing can never go back to the pre-war shape. Like, it's just kind of lost its elasticity. Right. So now it's just, like, a kind of big, sloppy, baggy mess where how do you, you know, how, how do you put it back together again? And in, in the U.S., as a historian, how I think about that is after the end of the Cold War, all of those really subtle mechanisms that have been developed over the course of the many wars of the 20th century basically to lie, to deceive, to manipulate people are kind of turned in on, the Americans turn in on themselves. Like that's now how our political warfare takes place domestically. Like yeah, like now it's just internal, right? It's like as, as if we're in a civil war where people use these, these measures that are, you know, morally indefensible, but are, you know, there's a kind of, you get a pass for that because it's wartime. But now suddenly, okay, you get a pass for that because it's politics. Like there's just right. so much incredibly bald deception and manipulation in party politics in the U.S. now that it, it, because somehow daily life is like warfare. Like that's that's what that's the sort of larger trajectory of the season of the podcast to kind of think about. And that's why it's worth kind of going back and saying, like, well, what was it? how do people defeat this stuff? You know, well, try somebody for treason. Like this is betraying your country. And I think there's a way in yeah. which. Right, like so, we are now in the U.S. You know, insurrectionists invaded the Capitol building on January sixth of this year. Um, yeah, there's we, an we, effort, we watched that. Yeah, yeah. There's an effort on the part of Congress yeah. to convene a commission to investigate it, and a lot of people don't want to investigate it because they want to pretend it never happened. You know, it's basically treason to invade the Capitol and try to. You know, there were efforts right. to to assassinate well, members of Congress. Well, well, funnily enough, we, we did a podcast just after that to talk to talk about it, to talk about what it what it looked like um, from from here at a at a distance. What what you know in and in this in this country, inevitably, we, the Second World War is in people's political imaginations all the time for, for a variety of reasons. Some of them good, and some of them not not that useful. Comparing that, how does this compare to the rise of fascism in in, in Germany? Well, one of the ways it compares is that 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 attempted because we called it a putsch because that's what it. That's certainly what it looked like. That putsch was far more successful than anything Hitler ever attempted when he was in putsch mode because they actually they got into the Capitol building. They disrupted uh, an, uh, the, the, the democratic process entirely successfully, not for very long, but successfully disrupted the general election and and regarded themselves as patriots. It, it looks, you know, it, it, it looks exactly like uh, the beer hall putsch in Munich, except far more successful, you know, because because the, what didn't happen was what happened in 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 uh, Munich, where the police lined up and shot shot them because they were insurrectionists. You know, the, the difference is this strange porous moment that happened yeah. on and January sixth, where yeah. well, exactly, yes, exactly, the man next to Hitler was killed, and Goering, exactly. But whereas what happened on January the sixth was a complete 
almost because it seemed unbelievable to the police or whatever they decided to do, which we'll, maybe we'll never, ever find out um, actually what, what decisions were made. It just looked from here, it looked like an identical thing that you need that the, actually the reaction to it is that because after all, Hitler's putsch is one thing. It's what the judge then decides to do about it. That's the crucial moment in German history mm. where he goes, ah, you know, He's a patriot, really. They're not so bad, these guys. And you don't do it again and all that sort of thing. A few years than, in Landsberg and you're out. Rather than th- right. ra- yeah, put sticks, right. putting him in an open prison, rather than throwing away the key for treason. And and it's it's a right. it's what you do afterwards. Right. That's the and really that's, important and thing that's, you say. That's that. where we're at now. And, you know, I think it was last week a yeah. member of Congress said, you know, I look at the videos. And I think it was just like a normal tourist visit. And you're like, yeah. but wait. <laughs> no, it didn't. No, it wasn't. Like, what are you talking about? Um, so, you know, it's just that's why it feels like such a dangerous time. Uh, that, uh, but, 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 but for me, Joe, what I find, you know, I mean, we, we look at someone from sort of QAnon and you, you just think, what? I mean, you know, how can you possibly believe that? You know, or, or someone who's sort of claiming that 5G um, originated as a, as a weapon developed by the Nazis. I mean, how can you possibly believe that? You know, there's, there's so much nonsense kind of pummeled out there a really critical number of people seem to believe and you just think how can you believe it and then you go of course me being me you know you you, I, i then kind of think back to the 1930s and you think how can the german people have believed all this ideological nazi bullshit i mean how can they have have been so insane to have kind of swallowed all that up and that's the thing that I think is really interesting. You know, how you do manipulate people and a proportion of people and then, and then a critical proportion of people to believe something. And, and you know, should we all be worried? You know, sh- should we think, mm, gosh, it's only a small stepping stone from kind of, you know, crackpot, beer hall, putsch, you know, la-la land stuff of the of the Nazis in the 1920s to freaking running the show in 1933, getting rid of all other political, getting rid of all democracy, and suddenly you've got the kind of Second World War. Yeah, I think we should be really worried. I think we should be really I mean, one of, after, after all, one of the interesting things about the Nazis is in that sea of lies, they then do exactly what they say they're going to, they do exactly what they say they're going to do. So that it turns out they are telling the truth about it, Core a core set of things they're going to do, even though the prospectus, the 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 the, the reason for us is, is bonkers. Yes, the diagnosis of Germany's problems is a crock of lies. It's a pack of lies. But what they then decide to enact, they've been completely. I mean, I, without getting too sort of intentionalist about Hitler, but but there's there's a, I think there's a, the reason that argument sticks around in talking about Hitler and Nazism is is because there's a lot of kind of evidence for yeah. it. Uh, uh, the bit that's you know. really scary is that back in the 1930s, you've got radio and you've got cinema and you've got Hitler doing the radical thing of actually going around canvassing in an aeroplane, which no one else is doing. But today you've got social media. <laughs> you know, you've got you've got the World Wide Web, you've got Twitter, you've got TikTok, you've got the dark web, you've got all sorts of horrible things and, and means of disseminating and, cr- and creating connections in a way that yeah. you don't, you didn't in, in, in the 1930s. That small stepping stone from something which seems risible and laughable, you know, a risible and, and contemptible and not to be taken seriously that that step to suddenly actually being quite serious i mean there's there's been a few moments i think in the last few years where you suddenly you've suddenly kind of caught yourself and you're thinking whoa you know that that's really scary i mean one was i I thought was the 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 the, um capitol hill putsch i thought that was pretty scary um the other one was that letter from the french generals the other day because because suddenly in france Marine Le Pen being president is actually not very far away, is it? Not inconsistent. Uh, uh, that no. that seems quite a massive step for France to take. You know, down down a, down a potentially kind of pretty dodgy path. You know, and it makes you realise that the the democracy is can be pretty fragile. I mean, it's been proved in the past, but it's but but are we at that? Are we at a tipping point now? Do you think? So I wrote an essay, I, I'm a staff writer at the New Yorker magazine, and I wrote an essay last year, right before the pandemic, it was probably February of 2020, called The Last Time Democracy Nearly Died, that looked at the 1930s conversation, especially in the US, but also in the UK, around what to do in the face of the just death toll of democracies are just collapsing all over the world. Like, it's just like, just a kind of death watch. Um and there were 
many similar efforts to those that are going on today. A lot of institutes to study the future of democracy, a lot of forums, you know, a lot of sessions, a lot of conferences, a lot of newspaper columns. But there were some of the more interesting methods that were used to, you know, Dorothy Thompson, the great American political journalist said, you know, democracy is practice. Like, you have to practice it. Like, you have to actually do it. And um, that maybe Americans had kind of stopped doing it. And, and that maybe in countries where it, it wasn't a well enough established practice, it was, it was easier for it to decline. But, you know, part of the 1930s move was like, join a knitting club. Like, do anything where, with a group of people, you have to make some decisions. Are we going to make a sweater next or are we going to do hats? Like, do we want to do pearl one, knit one, or pearl two, what, knit, knit three? I, like, that people need to get together in small groups in their local communities and decide, like, do we want to raise money for a library through a bake sale or do we want to have a bicycle race? Like, do we want to have a walkathon? Like, people need to actually gather face-to-face in community organizations to build and reestablish the skills of making decisions together across disagreement and that that really has fallen out. And one of the reasons, and you know, at, at the moment is, is the social network, is, which is not a substitute for actual society. I don't know, when I go back and read about the 30s and the measures that are taken, so they, one big movement in the, in the 30s was this great guy in Detroit decided, he's this one-eyed guy, <laughs> I forget why he had an eye patch, but... He, uh, he was a superintendent of schools and he looked around like, you know, democracy's falling, falling down all over the world. He said, you know, we have, we have buildings that are empty every evening and every weekend. Why don't we just have gatherings where people can have political arguments? And he started this thing called the American Forum where like neighborhood by neighborhood, people would get, he would go around and he'd get people together. So you can use the elementary school building on Tuesday night and you can use it on Wednesday night. And what do you want to have an argument about? And they would debate, you know, should... Should there be national health insurance? Should we restrict gun ownership? How do we feel about socialism? And he just like used the buildings to make people come and like disagree with each other, with each other. And it became this huge thing during, during, during Roosevelt's New Deal. It became a federally funded program. And there was a radio version of it, which was called America's Town Meeting of the Year. It started in 1935, where they just got Americans together to argue and you would listen to it on your radio. And it was, it was designed to counter the sort of propagandistic tendencies of radio to not use radio to tell people what to think, but to actually use radio to bring together people to disagree with one another and to kind of fight things out. And that spirit of fighting things out while also really respecting one another was, had to be really deliberately nurtured, you know, step by step in the thirties in countries that didn't fall to fascism. It's like an inoculation, right? Like you got to have a booster all the time of the vaccination and I, I think that's... Having mine on Monday. You know, <laughs> so I don't know. I think that's kind of what's needed now. I don't know how to accomplish that, but the pandemic has made that a lot harder. And I think that kind of isolation uh, really is, has so, been terrible for... So, so technology is a sort of accelerant in all of this. Because, I mean, I remember when the internet was sort of breaking out, people going, oh, this is the most most revolutionary thing since the printing press. And you wanted to say to people, you do know what happened the century of the, of the, print, the printing press. You do, you, do, you do know what the 16th century was like, don't you? Like, like that the, the technology can disrupt established orders just like that, like um, almost, over, almost overnight, can't it? That, that if there's suddenly a new way of communicating, it can, it can disrupt things immediately. And the internet... The internet. I mean, it's interesting that the internet sort of comes after the end of the Cold War, and you wonder what would have what what an internet in the nineteen seventies would have looked like if the technology had made that happen then, or if the cold, you know, or the vice versa, the Cold War had gone on a, another ten years and coincided with the emergence of the World Wide Web. What you'd have got, and whether 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 in fact, because after all, the Arab Spring is often attributed to the the internet, isn't it? Is it, whether that would have happened in the Eastern Bloc countries a thing like that where people you know, irresistible communication. Because after all, a lot of what happens in the DDR is blamed on West German television, isn't it? That, that they can all watch West German TV and communic- be communicated with in that way with, you know, the, the, that's why they all wanted a pair of jeans, supposedly. But it is this thing of technology being an accelerant that, that, can, that can pop apart the things that people take for granted in the way their systems work. Yeah, and, and, and radio often, is def- and, and definitely often part of that. you know, in hugely emancipatory ways. Like, I'm a fan of the Protestant... Yeah, 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 Protestant, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like Brussels, yeah, yeah. Oh no, I'm not. Like the not necessarily in a, a bad thing. way. Like I, I and yeah. and I think that you know the disruption of kind of a kind of top down cultural authority through you know 
broadcast news or whatever has in many ways been really important for, yeah. uh, you know, hearing new voices and kind of uh, breaking a kind of just kind of bottleneck around a fully kind of enfranchised uh, population. I kind of all be part of a debate. But, I, you know, I, I will have to say, like, I think, first of all, I think social media is a disaster and it's a catastrophe for humanity. And I also think that we have to reinvent the internet. Like, that is, that that will be necessary and it can be done. So in the same way that there had to be new ways of thinking about what the printing press was and um, new ways of thinking about what what rules could be like I just think we are we're in a a lawless time in terms of um, how we live together as as societies and there's gonna we're at the cusp of something really different and new and it could be really terrible and it could be great but I'm rude I'm still you know I'm still pretty confident we could get get to great yeah, well, we wouldn't well, want to I, end on a pessimistic note. I mean, that would... Well, be... I was going to say, is there, is there going to be a podcast in 80 years' time where they sit around talking about the, the, the time we're living through, going, my God, that was a close shave? Or will they be saying, and that was the cusp of disaster? <laughs> you, you, you know, because, because after all, the, this period of history we've been, we talk about in this podcast is so well mapped out now. And the, and the you, you could, you know, there are different ways of interpreting, but the, the sort of... the the the, the 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 geography of it, the landscape of it, is very familiar to a, to a lot of us. And so I think that's why often you go back and you look at it for now, don't you know? And are we in are we in 1930 or are we in 1939 in that in that mm. landscape? But, we don't know. Well, ho- hopefully, hopefully neither. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for having oh, me. Oh, thank you on. so much, yeah. Jill. Um, and and we thoroughly recommend uh, your your podcast, um, uh, which. Uh, there's ten episodes, isn't there? Um, uh, that take you through the whole century, basically but, of, of but two seasons. Two seasons. But two seasons. Yeah. Oh, the third season we're gonna solve everything. The first two seasons have been just dis- <laughs> setting it up. The, the, the new third role. seasons, all solutions. Yeah. The the listeners when they listen to Jill's podcast, will hear hear one that's immaculately produced with audio and all sorts of stuff, rather Visiting than James and, I and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> yelling at each other from our offices. But there we are. <laughs> But this is one Thank of those so podcasts much. that we, we every so often, Joe, we have these podcasts where, you know, you, afterwards you, you end up kind of thinking about it for, for days on end. And I can I can yeah. see this is one of those. So thank you. Definitely. Right. Most definitely. Thanks very much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening, okay. everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you. Cheerio. Bye-bye.